Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires to fill out, and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. All right, let's jump to the guests. Uh, so I'll start with Anna Kelly. So uh, I... Anna is one of those people who you are totally drawn to uh, what she's done. Started as a, a full-time, I want to say a financial accountant, but that's probably not right. Uh, in the financial services space, let's just say that. Uh, she'll probably give you more detail, um, but had a full-time job, but was also raising a family and had a bazillion other things going on. But from day one said, hey, I think I can kind of figure this real estate thing out. Started out investing kind of locally, now owns a ton of property in different states, both passively and actively, full-time real estate investor, um, and also still a, a full-time mom. So, uh, Anna, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chad. It's an honor to be here. All right. Uh, the second guest, uh, and by the way, Alex, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe hails from North Carolina now. Is that right? I live in North Carolina now, yep. Originally lived in Las Vegas, moved around a bunch, um, at one point is self-professed to have been broke, uh, which I hope is okay to say in the airways. Is that, is that right? Am I allowed to say you were broke at one point? My website is called Broke as a Choice. Yeah, I was broke the vast majority of my life, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well, that's not awesome, but it's, uh, I'm uh, glad you're willing to talk about that. Uh, I think many people at one point are broke. I... I uh, I remember a time in my life when I had $8 in my bank account uh, for more than a couple of days uh, when I was younger. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but uh, I, Alex is awesome because he's done a bunch of different things that I have no experience on. He's done some major, major rehab projects, um, but he's also done some of those projects when he wasn't actually close by them, which I think is such a tremendous um, skill. And, and one that I'm really hope, hopeful to him to kind of talk through. Also at a time when there's folks in this call who probably own investment properties that are not next door to them, which is especially challenging at this time because look, this pandemic's a bit localized, right? Uh, New Jersey looks much different than North Dakota does right now. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, also, uh, you know, 
traditional buy and hold investing is a little different than a big rehab project. Super interested to hear how Alex is handling that. Um, and uh, also, and then finally, uh, and the reason I really am pumped Alex is going to be here, he's just one of those people that you know is going to end up on the right side of things. Just uh, a tremendous love of life that I've just been drawn to, and I don't even know him that well. So, uh, Alex, man, thanks for joining us. Somebody's been stalking my Facebook feed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, cool. Uh, I hope my intros were sufficient. Uh, so let's just jump right to it. Um, I'm going to start with just a super broad question, and that is, um, and and we'll start with Anna and then Alex. Uh, give me your kind of, I don't know, if you could sum up your 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 feelings in a couple sentences right now. How are you feeling with your real estate investments as it uh, parlays with the the kind of ongoing pandemic that we're in? Sure. So not to beat a dead horse for the use of the word lately, but this is really, really unprecedented and just so much changes every day that kind of makes my mouth drop and say, wow, I never saw that coming. So, you know, not unlike 2008 and 2009, uh, which I had just really started aggressively starting to buy rental properties at that point and found myself completely shocked um, when things started to collapse, I worked for a major financial institution, AIG, that was going under, lost a bunch of my 401k within a couple of weeks, um, was the sole breadwinner, and had started a business at the height of the economy. And I thought that I was well-planned and that I had taken very smart strategic action. And then suddenly the world collapsed underneath my feet. And I realized I don't know so much that I thought I knew. And I had to learn to quickly adapt to change and, and to pivot and just do the best I could every day to make the decisions I could control. So I learned a lot from that. And I find myself in a very similar position, but with hindsight this time to help me to be able to say, you know, a lot of things are changing, but if we stick to the fundamentals of investing and the fundamentals of why we're in real estate, we realize that this is a short period of time. The world will look different when we're done, but there's some still some things that we can control and we've got to very quickly adapt and learn the things that are beyond our control that are changing every day and actively work on mitigating those new risks and those new challenges so that our portfolios remain strong. So, you know, back then I had 12 units. Now I have almost 520 that I'm own and asset manage and a lot more investors and partners and, and people in my residence that rely on me. So it, it's a heavy time. Uh, there's obviously um, a, a huge uh, weight of how many people are depending on me to to navigate this properly and well uh, with my properties. But at the same time, I'm very hopeful and um, feel like I've learned enough and have enough tools and resources now that I can uh, get through it uh, well and, and hopefully sooner than later. So it's unprecedented. It's a little overwhelming, but um, I'm hopeful. That's awesome. Uh, Alex, uh, state of the union for real estate investing in your business and this current pandemic. Well, everybody knows that I hate to be controversial, but I actually think this is grossly, hilariously overblown. Uh, I think uh, people have been incorrectly conditioned to remember 2008 as an incredibly systemic issue. 
because in 2008, the real estate market was poisoned from the mortgage-backed security um, uh, sales at the federal level. I called the federal level, but at the national level. And so it, it permeated, that poison permeated through the entire economy and it trickled and people like uh, AIG got really slammed for it. But, um, and so what, what's happened, if you're, if you, everybody should know what the turkey problem is, where you disproport, you misunderstand risk because you only see it once in a while or only once ever. And so I think, um, as you said, this is going to be highly regional. So if you live in New York City, then most of what I'm going to say to you is not going to apply. And if you live in California, same. But if you live in 95% of the country where nothing's going on or very little and they're being overly precautious, I think this is going to let up and business is going to go back to usual for most people. In fact, most places are business as usual already other than you can't sit at a restaurant. So, uh, yeah, I think it's highly regional. I think people are forgetting that. Sorry, I think people are forgetting that this is an election year. Um, and I don't see them. If you go online and you look at the media, like you said, you can get really depressed really fast. But but the same thing happened in 2015. People were bananas in 2015 before the election. And I don't I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just don't think that they're uh, I don't think they're as coincidental as um, as people would say. So and, there's going to be just, just really quick. By the way, I think this is uh, I, I love hearing your take. I want a quick caveat by saying uh, so you are coming from North Carolina which yep. uh, I, I think probably needs to be just uh, stated in, in lieu of your perspective as I think everyone's perspective is, from an investing perspective is going to be very different as to where they are. Uh, you know, if you're in central New Jersey, very different from North Carolina right now. That's my point, right? It's highly regional. And so I think that's actually going to change the overall dynamic of how real estate is spoken about going forward, where right now, um, you know, brands are national because real estate is kind of national. Like I can invest in North Carolina from Las Vegas and vice versa. But I think that the regional um, efficiencies are going to start to come out. And I think regional type of, um, how do I say it, brands, like regional information is going to start rise to the top. So what I say is not going to be applicable everywhere. Like it was six months ago, you could say, hey, this is how do you do real estate? Whereas I think in the future, it's going to be much different. I can see the chat. Everybody's... Um, really uh really not happy with me saying business as usual and I, and I and I like the feedback but again like remember like 90% of all businesses are still open restaurants are still even open you just can't sit there and so i say all that to say uh, and i'll 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 wrap it up um the media it, the people going online like you said you go on there you get really depressed really fast but then you look at it you start paying attention to what you can focus on and you find out look life isn't that different it's not going to end and so there's a lot you can still control. And so what we're going to find, I think, out of this and what we're starting to see real, real, real fast. And I'm thankful that I have, um, I have some military experience. So I, I saw this before, is that when this is all said and done, you're going to find there's leaders and there's the fearful. And it's not 50-50. It's like 90-10. Uh, and so anybody who's listening to this, you know, be a leader. Don't be fearful. If I could just add a couple things to that, you know, I think in addition to, to being regionalized, which I, I agree with um, Alex a lot in that in that regard, is real estate is very, very market specific. And whether you're in a rural area or a major metro, uh, whether you've got, you know, um, a, a lot of supply and new builds or very little supply and a lot of demand makes a big difference in how things um, are going to impact you from a financial and real estate perspective, but also the the asset niche that you're in within real estate is is huge. And so, you know, people that are flipping high end properties in Las Vegas may get crushed, where people that are flipping 
first time home buyer homes in an area where there's not a lot of supply may still continue to do well once things get back to normal. But if you're in a state like, you know, even Pennsylvania, where I am now, we are on an actual stay at home order. And so there are tons of small businesses in our area that are absolutely crushed and will not make it through this. And so I think it's it's very regionalized specific as to how many businesses are still open, how many aren't. And, you know, for myself, who I have apartments in um, Atlanta, Georgia, in a major metro, um, two different complexes. One is hit really, really hard because of the demographic and the employers that are there, the types of businesses they're in. That tenant pool, many, many of them have been laid off. Or in another part of Atlanta, we have tenants that have not been affected at all. They're all working from home. Um, Pennsylvania, it's kind of a mixed bag. So where you invest, um, just like in 2008 and 2009 and now, where you invest is extremely important to your long-term success because it's extremely important to the economy and what and what these types of things do to the economy. If you're invested in a very, very resilient economy before these kind of things happen, then those areas are going to be stronger and, and come back faster. But if you invested in an area that wasn't already strong or there is a uh, very few employers and industries that are hit hard during this, you will have a very different perspective on real estate investing and be hit a lot harder. Yeah, I, I'll uh, I'll just make one just, I guess, as data-driven as I possibly can be. So we manage about 4,000 units, so we have access to kind of seeing where rent's coming in and not coming in. And and I'm, I'm totally realizing that this is just one snapshot. April is not the end of this. But at least so far, what we're saying is that in general, A and B class, there's been almost no change to rent collection. Um, where we're seeing some problems is the biggest issues that we're seeing are, are in the C and D class, but in particular on projects that were not yet stabilized, which just makes a ton of sense, right? Someone bought something uh, or, or it's some, for some reason it's not stabilized and they're, and they're basically they're going through eviction processes or they're still you know, leasing stuff up and, and they had a, 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 a plan and that plan has been kind of dramatically uh, impacted. Um, but for what it's worth on our side, A and B class uh, looks almost, I mean, you you couldn't even tell. If if all you were looking at were rent collection numbers, uh, you really couldn't even tell. And the crazy thing is A and B class profits in April are actually higher because there's no very little maintenance costs, uh, very little turnover costs, and very little inspection costs. um, Because people aren't aren't on those classes anyway. They're not not really moving. Um, Can I add to that? Yeah. So I think, um, and again, just... uh, I think you're going to see an exacerbation of inequality from this. And you always see an exacerbation of inequality during downturns. We didn't really learn our lesson from 2008. I don't want to make a big, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole so much, but it's going to be more so this time. And so what I believe is going to happen is that trend where, um, to Anna's point, right, depending on what you invest in and what the area is and what the job market looks like, um, it's going to be uh, affected differently. So places like uh, Raleigh, where, you know, if you have a high paying job and now you, it's a desk job, well, now you can work at home. So you don't, you're at home, but you're making the same income. Many people, not everybody, many people. And so their buying power doesn't decrease. And so places who have areas where they have housing shortages and now rates are coming down there, I think home prices above the median are actually going to continue to go up. And I think the profit margins for those uh, luxury flips, I, 
Uh, Anna said Las Vegas, and she's right about Las Vegas. Las Vegas is going to get absolutely demolished. I'm so glad that I sold my house in November there. And, <laughs> and um, But I think C&D class properties, which are traditionally um, felt to be more stable, are actually going to become higher risk going forward. And I think you're going to see that across the board in ways that I really can't predict. But uh, Thomas Piketty wrote it in 2013, Capital in the 21st Century. And the inequality problem is going to be exacerbated by this. Yeah, I agree with that. Just to add one other point to, to what you just said as well. I think, you know, right now, middle in middle class America are typically your small business owners. And so some of the hardest hit right now are small businesses like restaurants and small doctor's offices and dentist's office and shops. They're the ones that are closing down. And, and most businesses don't have enough reserves to sustain two weeks of their doors being shut. And with all of the issues with getting money actually to these small businesses, I think it's middle America that has a lot of small businesses that may not recover. And as a result, in a lot of the areas in these in rural America or smaller towns where you have small businesses, the, the retail um, and commercial space is really going to be hit hard um, for those types of offices and, and small businesses. Um, and, and you're going to have you know a, a bigger disparity than than what you have with those that are wealthier and and those that have have even less uh, at least for some time. I got a very uh, specific question for both of you. Uh, so the CARE Act came out. We spent a lot of time analyzing it um, from a lot of different angles. We have tenants who are trying to educate small business owners who rent commercial properties from us that we're trying to educate, and then our own businesses, both our uh, prime management business and our um, investing business. So uh, my question to, to both of you guys is, have you guys uh, had success getting anything tangible of note from the CARE Act for your investing businesses? Or um, has, it, has, it, has that not, not really had a positive impact on your business? Um, for myself, I spent a lot of time evaluating the CARES Act. I've read every single page and the new, you know, the new proposed legislation. So I spent a lot of time analyzing it. I did apply for the EIDL loans, the small business loans, up to like 3.75% two or three days after they came out. And I've not heard a thing on any of them. I applied for all of my companies. So nothing there. Um, you know, we may get an advance or we may not. The, a lot of the things in the CARES Act are not actually being handled by the SBA according to the new legislation. So, for example, people were supposed to be able to get up to $10,000, however much you ask for, up to $10,000. That's what they were going to give you within three days of application. I don't know anybody that's actually received $10,000. I have heard a couple people in the last couple of days that have received $1,000 because the SBA changed the act to say, well, we'll give you $1,000 per employee. That's all we can do. Um, the EIDL loans were supposed to be 25 to 50% of your gross income. What I'm hearing is now they're maxed at $15,000 per business because they've essentially run out of money. So I don't know very many people that have actually gotten an advance. I've just heard really in the last two or three days about uh, some expediting of people hearing that their application is being processed. And for myself, I haven't seen anything. Um, I did not apply for the PPP because I don't have um, payroll. My companies have payroll. And because of a, a lot of um, nuances in the CARES Act, we had our property management companies apply for the PPP rather than each of our 
um, companies themselves. And part of that's because apartment complexes, if you're not on the active management side are considered passive and might be denied. And also we often have these Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans that prevent us from being able to take any additional debt on the property. So even an SBA loan could trigger us being in default with our lender. So that's why I didn't apply myself for the PPP, um, but there's some potential that my property management company could get some of that and then pass it through to us in a cost savings for um, our employee cost. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, uh, just uh, one, more, one more question with you, Anna, and then I'm going to jump to Alex on the same question. Um, did you Have you reached out to your lenders at all about any, um, you know, if they'd be okay with you having pushing payments or, or any of that kind of stuff? Or what's your kind of strategy been with lenders? Sure. So I have a lot of different types of investments. I have beach house rentals. I have small apartments that I own myself, my husband and I, and then we have hundreds of units that we own through these LLCs and have federally backed mortgages. And I've taken a different approach for each. So those that I have with small local lenders, I reached out to them immediately. I have about 60 units with a couple of small regional banks that keep their loans in-house, which um, are are really the best type of loans you can have because it's relationship-based they keep their loans and they have a board that makes decisions. So I reached out to both of them and said, listen, I thought a recession was coming. I saved a whole bunch of money. I sold some properties. I don't think I'm going to have a problem paying. But if this thing gets much worse than I anticipate and the economy shuts down for a long time, I'd like to know now what my options will be. And so they offered me on the spot, both of them, to suspend payments for 90 days, to go to interest only, or potentially to modify my rates. So I said, listen, I don't think I'm going to need a forbearance, but I do want to modify my rates and lock them in for another five years. So I took the opportunity with both of my banks to to drop my rates from five to five and a quarter range down to 3.9 and 4% for another five years. And I was really happy with that. You know, worst case, if I need a forbearance, I can get it. But that's with the small banks. And and, and really quick, did you do you pay a fee to change your rate like that? Or is that? Yes. So the, the loans that I had that were already annually floating. So for those of you that don't know, a lot of commercial loans are 20 year loans. They lock your rate for five and then they float annually after that based on prime or whatever your index is. So for the ones that I had already had on an annual float, I was able to just lock in another five years for three to $400 per loan, which was pretty good you know, for dropping my rate more than a percent. For the ones that were already in a five-year lock period that had not yet expired, I paid half a point, but I negotiated them capping that so that it made sense for me to drop the rate. Um, So I I paid a little bit upfront, but I was happy to know that I could lock in, you know, fairly low rates for the next five years and at least take out that piece of of, um, instability and and knowing what what the next few years are going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it makes a ton of sense. The idea of locking in five years at, at three and a, three and a half. Is that roughly what you got? Nine, nine percent, which is about yeah. as low as I've ever gotten a loan on a commercial loan. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's not primary residence. So that's what I did with the local banks on the big apartments. It's much more complicated than what the media and anybody else makes it sound like. So to go into forbearance when you have a federally backed mortgage, it's basically the next step before foreclosure. So going into forbearance, the rules basically say, you know, if I go into forbearance, I can ask for a one month at a time, 
I have to show that I'm illiquid and I have no other way to pay my mortgage, which means I don't have reserves. And if I don't have reserves, I've got a much bigger problem than just delaying my payment for a little bit. Um, and in exchange for that forbearance, day 91, you have to get back to normal and you can have a year to pay back the three months that you put on hold. But during that year, you cannot pay out any investors any partners, you can't take an asset management fee or any fee at all on your properties, and you cannot evict your tenants the entire time you are in forbearance. So it really strangles your arms to be able to, to operate efficiently and effectively and to get anybody out who is taking advantage and maybe they got the government checks and additional unemployment and just choose to rent strike like we are seeing in certain states. You know, 30, 40% of tenants are striking to not want to pay rent. So I will absolutely not uh, request a forbearance for a federally backed mortgage unless it gets really, really bad and we've depleted every other avenue. Um, and then, you know, for my beach house rentals and, and a lot of rentals that some of your investors might have that are a single family with, let's say, Fannie Mae or FHA purchased, I thought about uh, asking for a forbearance on a couple of my beach rentals because, let's face it, they are going to be hit harder. Um, but when I thought about all of the credit implications of what it can do in the future, I really think it should be looked at as a, as a worst case and not, hey, the bank's going to let me not pay, so let me just conserve cash. Because even though the banks can't report you as negative and it can't impact your score, they can note your credit report that you requested a COVID-related forbearance. And if you have that on your credit report, even though these bankers see later that hey, you did have the wherewithal to get through this. You should have had more reserves. When a human underwriter is looking to underwrite you in the future for a potential deal, it is something that they, I think, will take into consideration. And so I've decided personally not. Uh, that was great. You froze the last couple seconds, at least on my screen. Uh, but I got, I got a ton of info. I think everyone caught 99% of what you said. I did it for sure. And, and I, I got a lot out of that. So uh, I really appreciate that. And it looks like you're back to normal again, which is good. Um, Alex, do you want to take a swing at that same uh, topic? Uh, to go backwards in it, Anna's right. Forbearance is a trap. If you don't know, I think you know. I spent the last three years in SBA underwriting. I, I knew as soon as this thing came out that it was going to be a dumpster fire and that uh, to, when you said, Hey, the first thing I did was go in and everybody ran in and spent four days reading about this stuff. And I said, it's too good to be true for starters. And two, it's going to change dramatically. And three, you know, the, I knew from, I have banking friends. Like I knew as soon as like, dude, my phone's blowing up. Like, uh, so I knew not to go chase that shiny object, especially because I don't have employees and I didn't need a loan. And you go off and you get these things. And then like Anna says, like that, now they got their hands in you and it's not, it's, it's a very expensive loan in terms of maybe the terms are good. Maybe the rate is good, but the terms are evil. And so uh, I think, well, again, I, don't, I, I think there's, I think they did this to get money to some industries, but I, it certainly wasn't for the small, small, small investor. I mean, Anna might be, I'm surprised you didn't get any based on the size of, it sounds like your operation, but a guy like me who owns, you know, 30 units, like, it's just, it's not for me. It's not for the small business owners. The, the money dried up immediately and everybody went running in. So I actually took that time to go do other things that were productive because I knew it was going to be, a, like I said, a dumpster fire. Uh, forbearance has been talked about a lot. Um, it is an absolute trap. It is an absolute trap. Do it at the, at your, if you need it to survive, take it. But if you don't need it to survive, like, 
wounds are better than death, right? I mean, that is that is almost certain death. So uh, I, I would say, again, it's I, I think the I think the SBA is trying to sell this uh, to the people, which is good and it looks good, um, but it's it's a it is man, it, it's a poison pill. So, so let me just get let me just, get just a quick. Uh, uh, so we have two parts to our business. We have an investing part. Um, for what's worth, we we. Uh, for what we've read and, and heard, and I think that was our decision, we actually did not even apply on the investing part. Um, uh, we thought long and hard about it, and we may still, but uh, it, it, it sounds like we'd be looking at about $1,000 on that side of the business, which is, which is kind of crazy. Um, uh, I, I will say this, as someone who employs a lot of people, and I will see whether the strategy is right or not, but it, the, we, what we are seeing and how it's impacted our own company is um, encouraging us as a small business to basically not lay people off, which would be the normal um, approach, and instead to kind of underwrite, uh, basically the government underwriting their their salaries for a period of time. I, I'm not going to argue the politics one or the other, but I would just, it's interesting to us as kind of two different sides of the business. The business that employs people has definitely been aided by this and, and allowed us to kind of keep hiring people, actually hiring more people right now. Um, I think that's, that's a good thing uh, overall on the investing side, not the impact you'd like to see. Um, but uh, Can I clarify a bit? Yeah. If you need it, like, like you said, you have employees like, you know, again, we can argue the politics of it or whatever, or the, or the ideology, but uh, if you have employees, you don't want to lay them off and you want to get through the storm and the government would underwrite those employees, like that has usefulness and should be um, addressed seriously. I think my concern was, you know, they announced this thing and every warm body in America ran and applied for this loan. Again, I talked to my banker friends early in this. I just, it's one of those things where I knew that it was not going to be first come, first serve. It was going to be a mess. I also know that if this is something you really need, you know, they're going to work it out. And it's kind of like, don't just go, it, it's shiny bouncy ball syndrome. It really is. Like, if you need it, it's something you, and, you're, and you really have to do, do this to survive or, or for the best of your company, like, go do it. But if you don't, it's largely a waste of your time. And, and I know people that have spent a lot of time researching these um, programs, putting out content, trying to teach people, da, da, da. And I'm like, dude, this might be over in a few weeks. And then it's just, it's time where you could be spending on the efficiency of your business on the income or expense side. And those are what really matters in my opinion. Let me ask you guys a, a very specific question. I'm going to kind of jump topics here. And I, I appreciate both your views on that last topic. Um, uh, are you guys either actively or considering putting in offers for new deals right now? Now that's a very specific question, but I'm kind of looking for a pretty specific answer, I guess. Uh, maybe Alex, we'll start with you. Are you, are you, or are you at least considering it? Good. I put an offer on retail office space May, uh, April 16th, and it was that, accepted, and we intend to close. That sounds crazy. I, I know, knew you right? were crazy. So I'm not okay, crazy. I'm not crazy. Uh, I'm not crazy at all. It's it's retail again, it's like, office space. Yeah, retail office space. Uh, we need a new office. I needed a new office before. I'm going to need a new office when this is over. Look. I, again, regional. I don't. I can't speak for everybody. If you live in New York City, then you know you probably. I probably sound like a complete jerk to you. But where I am, we're busier than ever because people are sitting in their houses now, and they're like, "Hey, uh, we're sick of looking at this old thing. Can you come over and do some rehab?" Yeah, sure can. And <laughs> uh, we're still flipping houses, uh, retail markets. I mean, I flipped a house. My delay, my closing was delayed because I live by a military base, and some of the PCSs were um, were delayed by three weeks. But 
I got offers in. I'm, I'm set to close. My, I had an offer on that house day one. Six offers day one, five above asking price, uh, right at the, at the start of this thing. So uh, what I will say is if you're new and you've not done this before, sitting and waiting for 30 to 45 days to see how this thing fleshes out a little bit is probably smart. This is not the time to go rushing in. But for me, right, it's business as usual. And I watch the metrics in my town. And it, uh, on the sell side, it's a little slower, but not really. We're still, in, we're still in a hot market. We're still in demand. Rates are low. Buying power is up. I, work, I live near a military base where nobody's lost the job, right? Uh, there's obviously some job losses here because the restaurant industries are acting differently, but I don't mean to say it's no disruption, but sure, for me, very, very little. not been that yeah. much disruption. So I can't stop my business when the metrics of the area have not changed just because it seems uh, in the media, like, you know, the world is falling. I have to pretend like, I have to act like there's going to be tomorrow. And I intend to do, I move forward with that, uh, with that mentality. So that's great. And let's jump to you. Same question. Uh, are you or would you consider putting in an offer today? So a couple of caveats before I say this. I, I will say I, I put a deal under contract that we had been working on before all of this happened. And we made some adjustments and pushed off the settlement for several months for both us and for the seller. Uh, but we're still buying a 73-unit apartment complex in central Pennsylvania that we intend to close. One of the reasons that this this mediocre deal ended up being a stellar deal is because it's actually our first section eight property. And where before we were like, eh, section eight really isn't our deal. I really like class B plus A minus areas. We said, you know, there's something to be said for stability of income and not every deal has to be a slam dunk value add deal. So now suddenly section eight looks really, really attractive because while some of our tenants may struggle to pay, those section eight checks are still coming in. And in some parts of the country, Section 8, if the tenants actually lose their job, they're actually covering the tenant piece of the rent in addition to their piece. And so uh, that deal, we're going to continue to move on. What I'd like to just leave everybody with, again, I can't stress enough, is how regionalized and how niche-specific real estate really is. I think that there are deals to be done in every single real estate market. So whether you're in an up market, whether you're in a recession, if you're in this as a long-term buy and hold investor, which is what I am, I, I primarily believe in, in long-term hold investing with a few value play, you know, five to seven year apartment complex holds. Um, you just have to be very, very conservative when you buy, you never pay retail and you only buy in markets that you really, really know in an asset class that you really, really know well. So with, with those things said, the other thing that you always have to consider is what are the risks of this investment long term? So if I'm a long term buy and hold investor, what are all of the different risks that I have? And what I will say right now is your ability to mitigate all of the unknown risks is extremely hampered, at least where I am. So Right now in multifamily, you know, I've got a huge risk that people won't pay um, if this thing goes longer, that a lot of different jobs go away that impact my tenants in the areas that I'm in. And if that happens, a 10% drop in occupancy will drop a, a multifamily or any commercial property for that matter by 20 to 30% in value. So my value is specifically tied to the net operating income that I make on those properties. And if I have a big dip in occupancy, even if it's only for three months, if I want to sell in the next three, six, nine months, I'm not going to be able to sell for any less than probably a 20 to 30% hit in my value 
because of how these things are underwritten, appraised, and financed. Now, what that tells me as a buyer is if I want to find it, if I find a great deal, I've got to buy it at at least 20 to 30% below its value yesterday before this crisis. If I can't get it 20 to 30% below what I thought it was worth before this crisis, I'm personally going to sit on the sidelines. And part of that is even with quite a bit of liquidity saved up, I've got to first work to preserve all of what I have and to be able to get through hundreds of units, being able to cover my debt service, especially if this thing goes longer or if my hands are tied longer than 120 days that I can't evict people or if we have you know further rent strikes or legislative changes like uh, the ideas being being uh, passed around by um, Octavio Cortez to have rent forgiveness throughout the country, like completely forgive rents and landlords are just going to have to take a loan from the government. And if you want the loan, you have to agree not to raise your rents for five years. So we've got all of these unknown risks that we've never had before of not being able to know how our tenants going to be impacted, how much we are actually going to be able to collect whether we can evict someone and whether the government is going to tell us that we, we have to forgive rents. So I have to work on preserving capital. And once I, I get through this period of preserving capital, then I will think about buying more multifamily investments when, when the dust settles. So it's going to have to be a really attractive and really cheap deal in my market that I know really well for me to be able to be willing to buy something else right now. Yeah, just um, just really quick. Uh, so, a couple different things you said. Um, the first that I, I don't, I just want to comment on. I don't actually know the answer, but I'm intrigued on. You mentioned the idea of an appraiser, um, you know, looking at NOI as a way to evaluate property. I'll be interested to see if the appraiser is willing to take out sort of Q2 data when making their appraisals. Uh, you think not? I. I I don't know. I'd like to think the appraisers have the ability to realize that that was a uh, not, not. I'm not saying tomorrow, but you know, four or six months on the road. I'd like to think that there's some adjustments made there, but that's interesting and, and uh, a point we could debate, I guess. Yeah, and I think Chad, the key is this: right now, anybody trying to buy a property with a value add, thinking that they can add a little bit of sexy granite and some nicer cabinets and flip it. that's 150 bucks a month, you know, they're not going to be able to get agency financing and right. no bridge lenders are in the space. So for commercial and apartments, really any agency lender, even if an appraiser would want to ignore it right now, Fannie and Freddie and the major CMBS lenders, they are still looking at T3. So if you have a bad three months, you will not get a loan. So that's really the issue is the ability to borrow against it more so than the appraisal and what they may or may not be willing to do. I want to, I want to jump to lending and and flesh out a little more detail. Um, But just really quick, just two things that we're doing with our own business. um, If it's interesting to people. So uh, one is we had a uh, oddly enough, a deal for a farmer's market under contract. One that I am unbelievably excited about. Uh, It's probably one of the most excited deals I've ever had under contract. Um, and it, we are, uh, we definitely consider still moving forward. I'm still super excited about it. Our, our approach has just been kind of push the ball down the court a little bit. Um, so basically just, just delay the progress on that and, and push out closing basically as far as we can let the dust settle and kind of reevaluate. Which I think it makes a lot of sense is like the, the deal was still a good deal to Alex's point, the world, we, we, I do agree with Alex at, at, at a macro that we do think the world will go back to normal, 
uh, in the future. So if we can push out a deal that we like before, um, uh, you know, once things kind of settle and, and, and we can stabilize that, that's been our approach on, on that side of things. But here's an interesting thing that we're doing that other folks may find is, is intriguing, um, where I'm actually putting an offer in and, and, and an attempt to actually close on in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, um, my primary residence. So um, where I, I live today, uh, I'm actually going to be able to move out of that and rent that out so I don't need to sell it. And um, so if you potentially live somewhere where you could move and sell, uh, or you're, you're renting today, maybe. I think this is a really interesting time to buy a new primary residence. Um, just my own personal experience here, um, every property that we have approached the agent, um, one way or another, they've basically hinted to us we're the only person looking at the property. Um, so we basically have the market to ourselves. So we have plenty of time to look at properties, number one. And number two, I would say at least half of the properties, in particular the vacant ones, it's been made very clear to us that the seller is willing to, to work uh, and, and be flexible, which is very different from how it was even four months ago, right? I mean, uh, any, anyone here on the call who's putting in offers four months ago know that, you know, by and large, people were much less willing to negotiate. They wanted full asking price. That is not what we are seeing today. Um, somebody asked me on a call earlier uh, today, are we seeing the market drop yet? And I said, we haven't, but that's because we're not seeing any transactions. So we don't, you know, I mean, we're yeah, a couple here and there, but we're not seeing transactions at scale. So you don't, you don't really know where that market's going to end. But I'll just say, if, if the market is what I am seeing on a personal level of, of buying a primary residence, uh, this market is going to drop 10% because we're seeing everyone be willing to work with us. And it just makes sense because we're the only person you know, not the only person, but we're a very small group. Um, so I think it's an interesting strategy. If you can, if you can pull it off or you could, you could move and rent out your house. And the last thing I'll say, just kind of close the, the loop there. Cause you're probably wondering, well, aren't you worried about renting out your house? Our, um, rental, uh, filling vacancies on the prime mansion side has it's declined, but nowhere near what you'd think. Uh, maybe only about a, a 10 to 15% decline in new move-ins right now. Um, so we're still seeing people need to move in and market rent is not really changing right now. Uh, so, I mean, we've seen a, a decline, no question in overall move-ins, but I would say it's in the 15% range. So nothing near what you'd think, number one. And number two, no, no change in rents. I see the question come up from, from memory. Basically, no change in market rents, which we find to be fascinating. Um, and, and even a few complexes, at nicer complexes, are actually seeing a, an increase in demand where they are seeing people maybe want to actually move into a nicer place because um, they're, they're worried they might be there for a while. So just some interesting kind of feedbacks we're seeing uh, in our own business. Yeah, okay. Chad, one thing to note on that too, because I've got things in, in Atlanta and then you know here in Central PA, is Central PA seems to be very, very resilient. And I think one of the reasons is because we have more demand than we do supply, unlike a lot of other big markets. But I know, you know some big markets in Texas, um, Amarillo, parts of Atlanta, rent, rates are decreasing significantly because they're not able to get enough people to come in and look at units. So they're just offering crazy concessions to try to get people in. So again, you know, yeah. it's to yeah. hamper that it's very, very regionalized, but I think to your point, you know, there's always creative things that you can do. So even though I said, Hey, unless I can get something 20 to 30% below market, if it's in my backyard and I believe that my area is not going to be hit very hard, 
I'm going to be looking for ways to creatively structure some of these deals. And maybe people that have had a house on the market a while or a four unit or a 10 unit go out and say, hey, I'll take this off of your hands if you're worried about what's happening. And let's figure out a creative way to get it done, maybe without the banks. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I, I definitely, I definitely agree. My comments on the, the market rent and on the filling of vacancies, that's like a mid Atlantic comment. Um, by the way, we have people here from all over the place. I see Oregon. I saw Austria in the house. What up? Um, so that's really cool. And I will do my best uh, when giving comments to give the regional component to it. Uh, Cause obviously every city and country uh, has been impacted differently. Um, I want to switch to just a, another kind of uh, question I have. For you guys. So I consider you guys both very active, um, kind of investors and, and very proactive people. What is something that an investor could do over the next, let's just say, you know, the next couple of days, next week to improve their own business at a time when uh, there's, there's some things they can't do? What is something that, that, you know, you think, or maybe you've done over the last week that you think any investor could be doing to kind of improve uh, their own portfolio. Uh, Alex, maybe I'll start with you um, since you think the world hasn't changed at all. I mean, since you think the world hasn't changed that much. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I, I live by a principle of optionality. Uh, I like to invest in things that are high upside, low downside. Um, and so uh, three things that I do almost all the time, and I've, I've tripled down on all of them now, and I think that uh, it's going to pay off uh, excessively is education. It costs you very little to educate, and the return on investment is incredible. Um, and now while you're home, you can read more books than ever, uh, especially about macroeconomics, which people desperately, desperately underinformed on. Uh, the second thing that you can do is you can invest in people like this, which uh, has been, uh, I think people are finding out real quick. Well, I don't know. They're, they're finding it out, but you know, the zoom, the zoom thing has blown up and I've been doing it a while. And now I've, we're doing probably everybody here like me has been doing three or four a week. And I think there's a high value in that. And certainly just reaching out to people that you haven't spoken to in a while, your Rolodex. And these are low impact investments now, but high returns in the long run. And then the third one that I invest in uh, that I've been doing a lot of, and actually uh, I have some really good things coming up, up is on content. Because I think intellectual property is going to be worth more than real estate will ever be worth, uh, especially going forward in the very far future. And so like right now, the time to be, writing blogs, doing podcasts, putting out YouTube and building your, in, your brand as an intellectual, uh, as intellectual property has never been higher and it costs you nothing. And you're at home or whatever, you know, your people are at home. I'm not at home. Well, people are at home consuming content. And so those three things, um, are low impact with incredibly high returns on investment. And so just cause you're not buying real estate doesn't mean that you can't be, uh, you know, I'm still spending my same 24 hours a day investing, whether I can't go and look at as many houses or I can't buy as many houses, doesn't I have not slowed down, not a lick. Really quick, uh, before we jump to you, first off, uh, I, I love your comment on optionality. It's the first time I've heard someone articulate quite the way you did, but uh, I, I guess I actually adhere to a, a very similar philosophy. And in, in I think anytime you can uh, take bets on things that have high upside and, and low downside, that's super smart. Um, you mentioned an econ, kind of different education um, uh, books or podcasts. Do you have a, I agree with you. I think econ more than ever right now, super important. Do you have a, a book that you really like or a podcast um, that, that other people may find I read more books than uh, almost everybody. And I say that 
humbly, I'm pretty almost sure I read more books than everybody. And most of them are on history and macroeconomics. And I think uh, if you want to know real estate, you don't need to know that real estate's simple. Uh, the macroeconomics matter greatly more. And that showed that we showed that in 2008. And then we're going to see that uh, far more so today, even though I'm saying this regionally, uh, it's, still under, it's still better to understand even the, uh, the macroeconomics of your area or how the country as a whole is going to go. A few that I like, uh, I mentioned Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. I am a super mega fan of Nassim Taleb. He wrote five books called Incerto, uh, Anti-Fragile uh, is a big one. Uh, and he, a big fan of optionality himself. On the spot, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on some others. But That's right. uh, Ray Dalio wrote a fan, he wrote two books. One everybody likes, which is okay. It's called Principles, don't read it. There's another oh, one on. he wrote. Principles, Principles is a good hey, book. There you now, go. come on. <laughs> There you go. No, so so I actually, so I, I'm a huge Ray Dalio fan. I, I'm going to get a 30 second Ray Dalio uh, second here. So I actually, I dated a girl for five years who was working for Bridgewater back when Bridgewater was like 50 people. And uh, no one knew who Bridgewater was because he wasn't doing any press back then. And uh, I got to go to their holiday parties and I became obsessed with their culture. So uh, you had yeah, me. I love Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio. I love Ray Dalio. I'm not dismissing it, but I'm, I'm trying to. I was trying to make a joke, but you ruined it with your with Sorry. your with your. Sorry, with your I, I, I got excited. Ray I Dalio, got excited. Ray Dalio wrote two books, right? One that everybody read called Principles, which, in comparison to the, his good book, is okay. His good book is called Big Debt Crisis. Now nobody reads it because it's technical, and it's about macroeconomics, and it's not like a fun story time. It's a, it's it's a serious book, but that's the good one, and that's the one that people should uh, read, and that's the one that predicted everything that's happening right now. Um, and he is a smart guy. I don't want to take anything away from Ray Dalio, a really smart guy. But those kind of books, Encerto, Big Debt Crisis, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, these are three that'll get you pretty far. And actually, I have a book list on my website that's a, a mile long, um, and there's a lot of macroeconomics in there. And yeah, anyway. just to, I, I just I, I want to close the Ray Dalio thing really quick, just to give people the, the frame of reference who he is. If you've never heard of Ray Dalio, um, he he runs a hedge fund called Bridgewater. Uh, arguably one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. Um, and uh, super, super smart guy. Uh, I, I'd say there's, there's two things worth hearing about him. One, I think you learn a ton about how he thinks about economic cycles. Um, he's incredibly, he's not political at all. He's just very, fact, not, not factual is the wrong word, but very um, just articulate about how he thinks through problems. Um, but I will just say, if you're going to read any, anything he consumes, Equally as exciting is how he handles culture in, in companies, um, and, and he is uh, obsessed with having an open culture where you get at the best answer, and it's just it, – uh, I don't want to go too Radical deep responsibility. This. Yeah, I don't want to go too deep in this, but, but uh, worth, worth studying, I think, just on the culture side too. All right, Anna, I want to jump to you. Um, kind of same, same question there, um, feedback on what uh, folks – you know, could do, or maybe what you're, what you're even doing, uh, you know, over the next couple of days, week or so, uh, during this, uh, this pandemic. Sure. Um, I agree with Alex completely. I think, you know, staying educated and, and spending the time to invest in yourself and your knowledge of not only the, the specific market niche that you think, um, you want to be investing in or that you are, um, but economics, it, it's, it's huge. So, you know, part of why so many of us were blindsided in, in 08 and 09 when this financial crisis hit is because we didn't really understand what was happening. And, and most people didn't, you know, in the mortgage-backed security market or that there were even market cycles. So before this pandemic even happened, 
we were pretty well at a hyper supply stage in the market, meaning we were about to head into a recession. And people could argue all day long, depending on how much they actually know or don't about market cycles and, and the stock market and whether you know things are overvalued. But in general, we could see that at the top of a cycle, it starts to come down. And we had a lot of indicators that a recession was, was um, inevitable at some point. So for those investors who were kind of preparing for that and getting liquid, we're in a better position now during this crisis because we knew what economics were telling us was going to happen. And so you become better prepared as an investor as to what to do. So if we end up in a bad recession or it's, it's um, exacerbated and elongated because of the COVID-19, that means that after that we'll head toward recovery and eventually values will start to come up. So if you don't understand economic cycles and you don't understand supply and demand and what massive amounts of debt um, might do to the economy, you know, inflation or deflation and how that could impact property values, you could make some big mistakes in investing. So take this time to learn about the economy, about macroeconomics, um, supply and demand, and your market niche, and look at historical patterns. What happened in the last major downturn in your particular areas that you're interested in investing in and how they fared, you know, through that recovery and growth phase. Uh, because these things tend to go in cycles. And so once, you know, all the craziness dies down, uh, we, we still have the same basic market fundamentals that'll, that'll drive what we do. So educate yourself. The only things I would really add to that is to really um, focus on getting liquid and finding all of the sources of cash that you can so that you can prepare not just to weather this downturn and you know the storm, depending on where you are and preserve capital, um, but that you are able to capitalize when these opportunities come. And, and every niche is gonna be a different time period when it's a buying spree. Um, so for example, beach houses may go on fire sale much faster than single family homes that may take a year to get out of forbearance before they start to foreclose. Or apartment deals may, you know, some of them may, may fall sooner than later, depending on how highly leveraged they were. So get to know um, the dynamics of what's happening in your niche, in your local market, and in the economy, and free up some cash. So for me in the last downturn, I didn't have a lot of cash. I had hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt when the downturn hit. And banking and lending froze up. So I didn't know how to buy properties creatively. So either find cash, find partners with cash, or learn and study how to do creative deals and how to make a deal out of a deal that maybe other people don't see. And those things are going to get you the furthest when the buying time does come. Anna, you sound so you sound so more, much more positive by the end of this than you did in the beginning. I feel like I had a I feel like I was part of that. I feel like I had some of that influence. <laughs> I'll say this: I I am an eternal optimist. Um, my husband's a pessimist, and I, we're both arguing who's the realist. But because of the, the niche that I'm in and how impacted my tenants are, and how big of an impact that has on property values, you know, this is a, definitely a crisis that. Um, has to be taken seriously in, in my niche because it's more impacted than some in my area. So I've been in preservation and mitigation mode for you know two full months. I am definitely optimistic and I definitely see the light of the tunnel. But I think we, we have to take seriously the fact that some of us will be much harder hit and impacted on our, our businesses in the next few months than others will. Uh, I've got two follow-ups. Uh, and by the way, I know we're like an hour in, but I feel like this has been really interesting. Um, different viewpoints. So I'm going to hang in there. If 
uh, you know, normally when you're going to meet up, it's like kind of awkward. You're like, well, if you got to go home, go home. Here, if like you got to have another beer, have another beer. I don't know what to tell you. Um, if I but, decide to but, leave, I'm just going to hang up. Yeah. Now, now if you leave, Alex, that's <laughs> going to be really awkward. Um, so uh, uh, I, got, I got two thoughts on that. So one is uh, debt to GDP. And I, I don't want to get crazy technical econ here, but um, Anna, you mentioned this. So this has been my pet peeve. I basically, so my wife for like, the last six weeks, she's been like, you know, and this is like her Super Bowl, right? So uh, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Six weeks ago, when no one was really even talking about this, she went out and got like 50 cans of Campbell's soup or something. I, it was like, and I was like, Ashley, you're being ridiculous. Um, and then sure enough, like, I'm like oh, actually, you're not being super ridiculous. So I can't really make fun of her for that. But I have been running around my house for anyone who will listen, saying, uh, and, and including my three-year-old daughter, I'm trying to teach her this concept. She's not really understanding it. That the the debt to GDP in the country is is terrifying to me. And to me, terrifying is the wrong word, but it's something that and I have not heard anyone talk about it really. Um, you know, at least the, the I'm not saying anyone, but the the main course media, which I basically stopped consuming because it makes me grumpy. Um, I, I don't hear uh, them talking about it. Um, so I'd like to just take five minutes and have each of you give your perspective, uh, maybe two minutes each. So I don't want to be too long, but unquestionably debt to GDP is going to be at an all-time high point. I, I can't see any other, way, any other way around it, breaking any record ever for the United States, including the Great Depression. How do you guys see that impacting real estate investing over the next year? And by the way, I realize this is a really hard question that I can't get my head around, but I feel like no one's talking about it. So I am, uh, I, I like the conversation to really start. So uh, I'll start with you, Anna, maybe. Um, how, how do you see high debt to GDP impacting your business? I'll start with saying I'm not an economist. I've read a lot and I have some presumptions, but there's so many unknowns and things that are changing like legislative risks that we haven't had to deal with before that it makes me say, in some ways, your guess is as good as mine. So with that caveat there, I'm going to say in general, when governments have a lot of debt, they really want inflation because the higher the inflation, the easier it is to pay off that debt because the value of the dollar is higher. And when the value of the dollar is higher, America does better and we can pay off our debt more quickly. So the government basically, through monetary policy through the Fed, the reason that they pump money into the system during qu like quantitative easing, like after 09 and today, the reason they cut the lending Fed rate to zero is because they want to promote spending so that they can keep inflation higher than not and keep us from going into a deflationary spiral, which is very, very, very difficult to get out of. So they're incentivized to keep interest rates low, to keep pumping money in, to keep people spending so that we at least have some level of stability and inflation. Now, the risk is the more they print and the lower the rates are, you can go into hyperinflation, which means prices really go up. And so for real estate values, if there's inflation, rents are higher and property values are higher. So from a real estate investor perspective, Inflation may be bad, but but expenses may go up, but so will theoretically the income. The real kind of red herring out there that we don't know is what kind of legislative risk do we have that might prevent us from being able to increase rents to keep up with the increase in expenses? 
So in an era of like rent controls, like in New York City or in California, if we have inflation or hyperinflation and expenses keep going up and taxes keep going up, but then they basically quelch our ability to raise rents, we could have a real problem if we're in an inflationary period, even though technically inflation is, is better for the economy than deflation. The thing that I think is also kind of maybe going to keep us from hyperinflation is the fact that lending is tightening so much. And there's, there's so many reasons for that behind the, the behind the scenes. But when people don't have to pay rent and people don't have to pay mortgages, the lenders are on the hook for a lot of risk. A lot of lenders and servicers could go down. Mortgage-backed security buyers don't want to buy those mortgage-backed securities because now they have a greater risk of default. And so they're going to demand higher in mortgage rates and a higher risk premium in order to do loans. So when that happens and mortgage interest rates go up, fewer people qualify for those loans, which therefore gives you fewer buyers that are actually out there spending, whether it's buying houses, buying cars, whatever. When interest rates go up and credit tightens, the ability of, of buying um, diminishes and therefore you have less demand for everything that's supplied, including, including housing. So when you have a, a big decrease in the demand and an increase in the supply, eventually that leads to deflation and to lowered prices. And so it's very hard for me to see forward how bad this could be. But I will say that the government has always found a way to balance severe hyperinflation with depression other than, you know, during the Great Depression. And so I think they'll try to legislate their way into um, keeping a balance and keeping us from going into major hyperinflation or to major deflation. I just don't see exactly how that's going to happen or how long it might take, you know, to get there. Alex, just your, your two cents, high, high debt to GDP, thoughts on how that impacts your business or how you're thinking about that or maybe how it changes your investing over the next few months? It's an incredibly hard question to answer in five minutes. Uh, Anna did a pretty good job. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted to jump, I could do, I could do this for six hours. Uh, it's, but, but her first caveat is correct. You know, assessing a narrative and, and, putting a, and saying a narrative sound, may sound good, but it's very it's much easier to do to do a narrative that sounds good than it is to actually predict the future in a specific way. So, uh, but I'm okay with being wrong. So here's my here's what I'm gonna, here's what I think is going to happen. I think Anna's right. You're going to see what you're going to see is you're going to uh, uh, inflation is going to go up. Uh, if we get to hyperinflation, I personally uh, think that hyperinflation is the worst possible thing that could happen to this country uh, because it creates other issues, socio political issues that. Again, there's a, a little bit of history here shows you that this could be catastrophic. Now, I don't think we'll get there. And she's also right that we've been able to prevent a lot of these issues in the past here. Um, so I'm hoping that doesn't happen. Although we're, I, I can't believe it's gotten so far. We, I can't believe we printed as much money as we have. So I've been wrong before. So all that said, uh, if there is inflation in the dollar value, then actually in the short run, theoretically, fixed rate debt becomes more valuable because – uh, you'll have more cash and your debt will be at the same at the same rate. So in some ways, on a micro level, that might people who own debt, I'm not saying over leveraged, but people who own fixed rate debt on real estate might have a small advantage in that in that area. I also think that we're going to see a um, we're going to see a decompression in interest rates against uh, buying uh, quality. So what Anna was saying was, you know, 
lending is tightening, but I don't think lending is going to tighten across the board. I think it's going to tighten for lesser qualified buyers. And I think it's going to loosen or stay looser uh, for high qualified buyers. And right now, I think you're going to see that spread go uh, much higher, which it should be now. So if you're a high qualified buyer and you're a low qualified buyer on a residential side, the rate difference is almost nothing. Even on big commercial, it's not as much as it should be. I think you're going to see that stretch really far, which only exacerbates the inequality problem that I spoke about earlier. So if you're buying A-class properties, I think you're going to do better than ever. And if you're buying D-class properties, I think you're going to struggle more than ever. And the middle, well, it's hard, the middle is the hardest to say, you know, what's going to happen. And on a macro level, if we can do all that's going to happen, if we can manage the socio-political fallout of that, you know, because people have to live, right? Like, Ugh, bread prices are going to go up and people are going to have less buying power, you know, and then you're going to see rich people, you know, wealthy people do better. This is going to cause perhaps real problems. And then we also have to manage the hyperinflation problem, which truly is the worst problem that I think our country could go through. And I didn't think we'd get this far. QE was bad in 2008, in my opinion, uh, albeit maybe necessary. We did not learn our lesson because we did not pay the price for that. And now look at us now. I've never seen us print $2.2 trillion so fast. And now they're doing Q, they're doing second, third, fourth rounds. I, there's nobody responsible saying no. You know, at least in 2008, we argued about the bailouts and whatnot and the QE. Now, of course, we do it. So I worry about that trend. Um, to, to bring it back to like, you know, what can investors here do? Um, I think fixed rate debt is actually going to. If it's on high quality properties, I think it's going to do well. Personally, that's my bet. I could be wrong, but that's my bet. If you have an A, B class property with fixed rate, low rate debt, I think you're going to be in good shape. Yeah, Alex, it's weird. You've said a lot of things today that are uh, controversial. I would say I probably agree. No, with- no, people just don't agree. But that doesn't mean no, no, no. I just hold on a second. I'm not done yet. I'm going to be nice. Um, uh, I think. Look, I think uh, controversy is great. It actually makes for a much more interesting uh, session. And, but I, I actually think of anything you've said today, the, uh, and I, I, I've agreed with a lot of what you said, and then I, I really like you. So I'm glad you came on here. But um, the, the last thing you said, I agree with unequivocally. And that is if, if what we're seeing in the early data continues to play out, it's that call it like A minus to B class is going to do, is going to be fine in this. We've seen no impact. And I realize that we're not done. We have a long way to go. But so far, those classes haven't been impacted. And I'm not talking, you know, A plus, right? The highest of the high. Let's let's take that out of that because it's to be seen what happens there. But luxury markets won't do as well. Luxury but but the the, the A minus to B class stuff has been basically on on hit if anything in some places we're seeing it actually do better we're seeing higher rent collection in some of those places and other places and and higher fill rates in some of those places and then i totally agree that if you can couple that with fixed rate mortgage if you believe in a high inflation world you can lock in you know by the way what a great time this would be to and i know this is controversial but to actually buy a a single family home in your own name and lock in a 30-year loan if you don't, if you haven't maxed that out yet, uh, a 30-year a, a loan locked in inflation rate of like, you know, I've heard rates of, you know, let's call it 3.8 or something like that percent. And then, and then wave the inflation rate at, uh, at high inflation out the next four years, because that's going to be great. What that's going to do is it's going to increase your rent naturally um, and, and may even increase the value of your property. So 
wholeheartedly agree with that uh, as a really interesting uh, perspective on how you move forward. And then just got tied around to what I was saying earlier, I, some of those people who need to move are going to need to move. And there's not going to be people who are putting in offers like they were uh, not too long ago. I wonder if we're going to see uh, bigger migration patterns away. People, people go, I don't want to live in New York City. I can go somewhere else where there's jobs available. The houses are cheaper. There's less COVID-19. And so I wonder if there's going to be actually a migration. And that's incredibly hard to predict. And I won't even try. But I'm starting to think if this thing goes on much longer, too. Right. It's like, you know, I know they're kind of locking down New York City, but somebody's going to, you know, somebody might just get out. Somebody might have the wherewithal and the resources to get out. And, and I mean, in bulk, not one or two people. Um, and I wonder if that'll cause some other, I wonder if there'll be migration patterns that we, that are hard to predict right now. Yeah. I mean, I, one thing we've seen unequivocally is that there's, I mean, not just us, the data shows unequivocally, there's been a, a movement of in particular younger folks moving into cities, but really everyone and moving back into cities, cities are getting safer. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if this leads to a bit of opposite that trend. We've actually seen some people, um, for, uh, across the board, moving into units, coming out of big cities, um, some short-term, three, six-month leases, but some longer-term, um, just evacuating out of a city where they could. Well, especially if you can telework now. I don't have to work in Raleigh. I don't have to work in D.C. I don't have to work in the city. I can work right. even in the suburbs and still do my same job as I was doing now because now we all know a lot of jobs can be done over tele, uh, telecommuting uh, or over Zoom. Anna, I saw you. I saw you nodding there. Any any quick thoughts on that? As well? yeah, I think you know this is one of those times where there's there's going to be a paradigm shift in a couple of different ways. And you know, one of the things is I, I do think we were already heading toward being a renter nation just because of the high amounts of personal debt that millennials, you know, people in their in their twenties and thirties are are strapped with just from school loans um, and, and car payments alone. And so we were already moving to where it was very difficult for them to get loans to afford their first home. So now I think we're going to have even more renters as this, this divide happens between um, you know, the, the, the upper class and the lower class and, and fewer middle class. But I think also I, I've started to see some articles about people being surveyed and already saying they want to get out of cities and they want to move into more suburban ha- uh, areas and rent homes rather than renting big apartment complexes in the city. So I think when that happens, and to your point about the world realizing they can actually have staff that work from home and still be productive, I think there's going to be a lot more telecommuting than, the, than there was before. And a commercial space, you know, companies are going to be able to, to do with less space and to have less costs by keeping people working from home. So all those things are going to create a, a fundamental shift. And I think a continued demand for, um, for rental real estate in our country, regardless of, of how long this thing goes on. Um, one of the things you said, Chad, that I think is, is really, really important that people should not miss is we are living in unprecedented low interest rate times. And so while you can lock in low fixed long-term debt, it is extremely powerful to be able to do that. And it increases your buying power significantly. So as long as you're buying conservative assets in areas that are fundamentally strong and that weather this type of downturn well, if you're locking in at three to 4% interest, um, you have very little interest rate risk and, and really inflation is, is on the bank and eroding their money, not eroding your money. So really until you're at about 6% interest, it's always more powerful to go ahead and leverage if you can. Lock in those low rates, keep your, your cash 
uh, free and use it, you know, to have some reserves, but to continue to buy more cash flow in real estate. It's still a powerful investment and, and I'm going to continue to buy as much as I can while rates are low. It's awesome. Um, I want to ask you guys both just a really specific question. And I don't even know if you'll know the answer. I, I, I guess Alex will have a better answer to this one. It, it came up in the comments, somebody asking, basically, how do I close on a deal now? Um, you know, if I've got a property I want to close on, I guess there's probably two parts to that question. You know, are title companies closing? I know some of our real estate agents are closing deals. Um, if they're listening, they may want to jump in the comments. But, uh, you know, if someone's got a deal they want to close, and maybe you guys don't know this answer, but what would someone do? I mean, and then part two of that is our banks. I know everyone, I know the, the hierarchy thing is banks aren't lending, but it, I, I, my, my, my gut says that small credit unions and small community banks are still lending. I'm just curious if on both those points, uh, can deals get closed now and, and are small to medium-sized banks lending on, on you know, reasonable purchases? So uh, it, it, can you close in a deal? There's going to be some state limitations because like some states you can't remote close. Some states you have to be at an attorney's office. Some states you can't close by notary. So those things will impede you. Some places are closing appraisers. Um, and so there are going to be some difficulties in that regard. But uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Chad, there's less buyers. So if you are a buyer and a person who needs to unload uh, finds you, then the likelihood that you can get that deal is still quite high in my opinion, but there's a lot of, there is some specific limitations there depending on where you're at, what the state is saying and this and that appraisers, inspectors, um, title, these things are going to be kind of jammed up. So you have to be concerned about that. As for banks, uh, again, I'm in, I've been in banking for 10 years. Uh, so I've seen a lot of the news come out like this chase is not doing under 700 loans or 700 beacon score loans and chase is not doing, you know, HELOCs and da, da, da. And I think that's, 100% 100% media sensationalism and doesn't doesn't affect Chase doesn't want to give you HELOCs and small uh, residential loans. That's not where they make their money. They don't care. They only have to offer it because they have all these, they have to make money in all these branches. So they need you to come in. And that's why they only take the easy loans anyways. They don't want the risk of a guy who can barely afford his mortgage anyways, taking a 650, taking a mortgage that he can barely afford anyways in these risky times. They'll, they'll just turn, say no right? Because they can, they, there's, a, there's a political cost for that. They can say no now, and then a smaller bank can take it on, and they're happy to. Now, the bank, the smaller bank does take on the risk, but I don't think lending is, lending is going to tighten. I'm not saying lending won't tighten, but lending is not going to stop. The banks are not going to get crushed like they did in 2008. It's not going to be a banking crisis. I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought at first we were going to see a liquidity crash. We still may, but it would have, we would have seen more of it than I thought than I would have thought by now. So, so, um, so Alex, just, be, just be uh, a specific question here. Uh, you feel like in general, if you went to a local bank who would have worked with you before, they're still my bankers, willing to- My bankers are all busier than ever. I have bank, I, I've been banking a long time. Like they, they they're- They're still they, doing what deals. Of, one of them asked me to come back and work. They need, they need the manpower. Like there's more loans than ever. Anna said earlier, like, hey, I called my bank and I redid, I readjusted my loan right? Like banks are at work trying to look, they got to stay in business too. Right. And they need new income and they have low rates to take on uh, high qualified buyers. So there is disruption. I'm not trying to say that it's better. There is, um, uh, there is going to be tightening for low qualified buyers, but it is not stopping by any means. If you have a good deal and you're a qualified buyer and the deal makes sense, somebody will uh, take that deal. It might be a little bit harder to find the right bank, 
blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying there's less, there's, there's more hurdles, but not, you know, there's 15% more hurdles. There's 10% more hurdles. It's not, uh, it's not game over for banking by any means. It's awesome. Uh, just some quick thoughts on, uh, I know right now you're working on bigger deals. Uh, have you tried doing a smaller transactions or, are you kind of, it's something like you're more doing a wait and see here. Cause I don't know a lot of stuff you're working on. It's bigger transactions. Uh, but it sounds like your bankers are still talking to you and, and working on renegotiating. Yeah, I, I think closing deals is a challenge in PA right now because Tom Wolf basically in our state said, unless you had a property under contract by, I think it was March 17th or March 13th, you can't close the deal. So he's basically forbade or forbidden our title companies from closing deals. So I think it's quite frankly ridiculous, but we also are not allowed. We're the only state, I believe, in the country that realtors are not allowed to show a property right now. So in Pennsylvania, it's very, very difficult to get a, a deal done just because of the legislative you know, strong arm at this moment. So it doesn't mean you don't get a deal under contract. You just have to have extensions in there and, and realistically talk to the seller and say, listen, we may not be able to close. I may not be able to get the appraisal done as quickly um, and my lender may not be able to close as quickly. So I think it's important that you still look for deals. And if you can find a great deal, just build in some of those, um, you know, extra extensions and provisions for when we can open up and close. In terms of small lenders, I'm actually a seller on a deal uh, that somebody was buying a four unit apartment building from me with a, a nationally known uh, kind of private bridge lender um, who offers, you know, good residential mortgages and they froze the deal and then they cleared it to close and then they froze it again. And they said, we're out of the market. So they did that because they don't have an in buyer because they don't keep their loans in house. So for a while, there is some disruption, especially in these private, you know, bridge type of lenders who are, who are basically brokering the deal. They're selling it to an in buyer and that buyer pool has temporarily dried up. There's some fear there in the market. Um, and them not wanting to take on uh, rental properties when they know that many people might default. So the lender flat out said, we're not willing to take risk on rentals right now. So their their reg regular residential uh, arm is still lending, but they're freezing on um, rental real estate. So what I've done is I've sent my buyer to one of my local banks and they said, sure, we'll look at the deal. They've been so busy. I just talked to my banker today. They've had it for two weeks. They were going to try to get it through quickly, use my existing appraisal and help my buyer out. And they've been so busy with all the PPP applications that they just don't have enough manpower to get to it. So I begged and pleaded, get it in front of your credit guy's eyes, get it approved, get it to your board. And can you help us move forward? So they're willing, but they are some of these smaller regional banks that they don't have a lot of manpower because of the PPP. So They'll yeah. get the deal done. It's just going to take a little longer than it probably would. And, you know, we just got to be prepared for that. There's some extended timetables right now. Yeah. I, I, and so I think that all makes sense. I think, I mean, I think that just the one thing to call out is I talk to a lot of people who basically fundamentally think you cannot buy property right now. Um, I mean, I've seen a bunch of people on our team, our site house realtors are chiming in. They're, they're closing deals. I guess they're not on vacation. They're actually working, which is awesome. Um, so it, it sounds like deals are somehow getting closed. Uh, I, mean, I guess the one point I would mention is I, I see this over and over working with a title agent who actually gives a crap about uh, doing their job, finds a way to make things happen. And then also having a real estate agent, who, if you are working with one who has experience in investment properties, they, they seem to figure out a way to get to solutions rather than just say no. 
Um, so I think that's like a really uh, good point. And then on the fun, on the banking side, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people I talk to, the 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 big loans are going to be really hard. You know, the 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 ten million dollar loans will be really hard to close right now. But I, what I, I, while I've heard that um, banks are you know in general tied up doing PPP loans, they they actually want to do they want to do loans right now. Um, well, they need the business, <laughs> right? So uh, I I do not think it's. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's inappropriate to, um, one, think about a deal. I don't think it's impossible to think about doing a refinance. Um, uh, even something like insurance. Uh, our, our insurance folks are, are cranking right now, getting people uh, rates because, frankly, you're sitting on your couch and, you know, this is actually a really good time to go through your business and say, I, I want to do a whole, pot, a whole session on this. Our next uh, event is going to be, what, you know, what can you do from your couch? But, you know, there's a lot of ways to save money on your portfolio from your couch. Um, so it's just, it, it just uh, I, love, I love the mentality, and you guys both have this, which is not just freezing and, um, you know, just like glued to CNN or whatever channel people watch news on, um, but instead, you know, kind of acting on the world and, uh, and making things happen. So that's yeah, awesome. One thing about lending that I think is super important. So I think in what what I learned from 2008 and 2009 that took me way too long to learn was never, ever, 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 ever take no for an answer and stop after the first or second or third or fourth or fifth no. Because I was told, you are too risky. We will not lend to you. Now, I had hundreds of thousands in debt. I worked for AIG. AIG was going under. I you know, didn't have a lot of experience. And so it was no brainer why they were saying no. But until I hammered and hammered and hammered and found a bank that would do a deal, I would have thought I couldn't do deals. And so today, I never take no for an answer. You know, very few lenders were giving second mortgages on rental property. They always want to be in first position after 2008 and 2009. I literally went through over 10 lenders telling me, no, they would not do equity lines or a second without being in first position. And then I found a lender to say yes. And I refied a whole bunch of property locked in low rates, freed up a bunch of cash. And so lending is going to tighten up for a while. Bankers are scared. They're scared of rental property and they're scared of retail right now and and some big commercial stuff because they know the likelihood is for a while there's going to be some instability and you might not be able to pay. So to Alex's point earlier, there's going to be a huge difference in what they're willing to do for very well-capitalized, well-experienced buyers of very good credit and those that are maybe newbies getting started. Um, So if you have a relationship now and you're a strong borrower, you'll be able to continue to borrow. But even if they tell you no, just keep going. If you find a deal, you can find the money. You just have to find the right lender to do it or find partners to help you get it done until you can refi or do something in the future. But getting creative right now and building on those existing relationships and finding other people to help you take deals down if your bank says no is really going to be one of the, the major factors in your success and the ability to get deals done when the world's kind of going crazy. Alex, something tells me you have experience of working uh, through banks saying no to you and you're broke is a choice. Uh, I used to be broke mentality. Uh, no, I know if you're if I was, I was broke, I wouldn't go to a bank and ask them for money. Banks only want to lend you money when you don't need it. That's the rule of banking. Um, uh, but to Anna's point, you know, it's actually uh, to two, a few things I wanted to say. Um, part of the part of underwriting 101 is the five C's of credit and the first C is character. And so most businesses fail when the business owner gives up essentially, right? They really don't care anymore and it kind of falls apart. And 
So if you show up at a bank every three weeks and you're like, look, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. It's like, dude, you showed the hardest part that you have tenacity. That's the, that's it. And capitalization. You want to make sure you're not, you know, going in undercapitalized. Those are the two big things. So uh, she's right. Like going there and, and beating them down about it shows that you're the type of, you're a good risk because you're committed. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say was I've had a, a lot of phone calls recently about people calling, asking me to, uh, for private lending. They want to give me money because they see a high set of volatility in their 401ks right now. And so you may, again, I, it's harder for beginners to go out there and just say, hey, look, give me your private money because you know that's a risk too. The, 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 the stock market ain't that risky. Um, but there is a there, there are people lending... I've gotten such good terms on hard money from people that normally, you know, are a little bit apprehensive. They're like, dude, I want to have my money in something, not the stock market. And so I've gotten, I've gotten Sidra money being thrown at me right now. Uh, and so I just wanted to add that little, that little perspective. And again, she said it right. She goes, the broker banks are going to suffer. Quicken, Rocket Mortgage, these loans that they just do the, the, they, they just do the, uh, uh, the sell and then they outsource, they uh, securitize the loan. They're going to suffer, and actually, there's some weird things that are going on where uh, the, they're, they're being told that if there's a loan in forbearance, they, they won't be able to unload that loan and securitize it, which is going to really, I think, Quicken Loans is going to have a tough time of this. I really do, and that's going to take some time to see. But if you have a lender that holds the mortgage or the debt in-house, they have a lot of flexibility. They're not wanting to screw around with PPP and waste a bunch of time. They want to give out good loans when they can. So if you come to a bank, my original point was if you come to a bank that holds the, the debt on in-house and you have a and you're a good risk and you have a good property, I still think you can get that done. Yeah. And one other quick idea that I that just popped in my mind to share with you guys, because I think it's it's applicable to what we're talking about. Right now through the CARES Act, and I'm not giving you financial advice to so talk to your accountant, but through the CARES Act, they're actually allowing you to withdraw $100,000 from your own 401k without penalty. If I had had that ability in 2008, I would have bought double what I could. I borrowed from my 401k what little I had left and bought a four-unit property that I knew would cash flow because I felt like I had more control of it and it wasn't that risky to take my funds. But if you need some cash and you don't have anything other than a retirement and if you're not comfortable with the stock market, if you think those values are going to continue to go down, you can either borrow from your 401k $100,000 right now or go ahead and withdraw it pay the, the tax, which you can spread over three years, thanks to the CARES Act, and have that liquid that you can maybe use to invest in low-risk real estate in areas that you know where you know what you're doing um, and where you're not really going to put it all at risk. But having that cash liquid also makes you look stronger to the banks so that when you do fi- have something that you want to buy, you've got $100,000 sitting there that you might not have been able to touch till you were 59 and a half before. So it's a very, very powerful tool that's available to you right now through December that's never been available to us as long as I've been doing investing for the last 20 years. That's awesome. Um, okay. Well, look, I am, I, I've learned a lot. Part of what I've learned is how to use Zoom. Uh, so that's been really exciting. Uh, I've learned a lot about real estate. This is great. I learned about North Carolina not being hit at all by the pandemic. They're all just hanging out there, having fun and partying. No, I'm just kidding, Alex. Um, uh, no, seriously, this has been great. I want to I wanna close with one more. Can I, I'll give you guys just one more comment. If we're sitting here eight weeks from now, uh, what will the theme of your investing business be in eight weeks? Anna, you go first. Yeah, that's a tricky question. That was not an easy question at all. <laughs> uh, if we're okay. here eight weeks, 
and yeah. two, two months down the two months down the road, where do you see your investing business and your kind of your day to day? How do you see things over the next couple of months changing for your investor? Are you do you expect in a couple of months to be on the on the aggressive path to acquiring more? Are you expecting to be more defensive? Um, are you someone said prepping to buy foreclosures? Good question. Are you sitting in the sidelines and just saying, "Look, I'm hanging out for six months"? Um, are you just doing education? I realize this is like an impossible question to answer, but how do you see over the next couple of months going? Where do you see your? You know, we talked a lot about what you've done the last you know mm-hmm. month or so. What do you see the next month looking like for your investment business? If you had to guess. So for the next eight weeks, I'm going to still continue to be primarily focused on asset preservation of the assets that I have, given the fact that right now we still are under lockdown and a lot of my tenants could be impacted. So protecting my investors' money by protecting our assets is my absolute number one. I am not looking to really buy in the next eight weeks. I don't think that most of the lending fallout and the Uh, mass opportunities because of properties going under is going to happen for probably another year. And so it doesn't mean that I'm not going to buy anything for another year, but in my niche of, um, you know, larger apartment buildings, um, I'm really not looking to buy much unless I can just find a steal. So um, eight weeks is too soon for me to be ready to pounce on something. I am looking at vacation rentals. It's a niche that I'm already in. I have a few Airbnbs and some beach houses, and those rentals are hit really hard. So a lot of people buy a second home. They can't afford to cover their mortgage if people don't come in the, in the summer. So I think there could be a, a quick opportunity to pick up some short-term rentals in areas that you think people are going to keep coming back to even after all this goes. So the only thing I'm actively searching for right now are beach rentals in two particular areas that I've studied for a long time. And if I find something in that market, I'll pounce. But otherwise, um, I'm on hold for eight weeks. Alex, your next uh, next eight weeks? Yeah, despite my aggressive behavior, I, I tend to agree with Anna. I'm in, I'm in capital preservation mode because I have investors too. And the first thing, like preservation of capital is job one, always. Um, and so I'm being uh, very do you have, Do you have any I'm, open flips, Alex? That are like I have two open flips, and uh, you know I have a, a multifamily. It's not Anna's size; it's twenty-four units. But no, but I but mean, your two flips are right now like in mid rehab, basically. What one was supposed to close mid-April and it got delayed uh, till May one, but we are supposed to close May one, and then the second one I kind of I put that on hold because I didn't want to be spending the cash. You know, well, if the world ends, I want to spend it on toys. I don't want to spend it on on, <laughs> on granite. Um, so look, I. I, I my mentality is like, look, we're eventually going to come out of this. Uh, maybe the world is a little bit different, but fundamentally, people are going to continue to do business. Capitalism isn't going to stop, uh, isn't going to go away. And so uh, I'm more, uh, eight weeks, I'm, I'm going to continue. How do I say it? I'm going to continue to take opportunities when I can. I'm going to preserve my capital. I'm going to do everything I can um, to invest in optionality. Like I said, I have some media projects coming up that are, that are uh, unprecedented for me uh, and new opportunities. Uh, but I'm not really looking to expand my business because here's the other thing. We didn't really talk about it. Uh, I call it the lake of liquidity. Stock market drops 30% in a week, two weeks, whatever. Like that's the most liquid human behavior. It's not going to hit real estate, the most illiquid asset class for like 18 months. And so the opportunities are not going to be in eight weeks. The opportunities are going to take a while to unfold. If you remember, you know, the stock market crashed in a day, it doesn't seven, but the, the real estate really didn't like start to pick back up till 2012. 
So we have a long lead time for liquidity here. So over eight weeks, I think, um, I don't think you're going to see it that much in real estate. Maybe you'll see transactions change and you'll see, and people were buying, like I'm going to, once this flip sells on May 1, I'm going to go buy another one, but I'm going to buy it in this market and deals I know. I'm not going out and buying 10. I'm going to do deals that I know, um, that I feel incredibly confident that I can close. I'm going to continue to hold my cash. Um, I am in deal, I'm in preservation mode, but preservation mode doesn't mean turn the business off. That's, a, that's irresponsible. So I'm going to grow at a smaller pace. I'm going to massively prep for the forthcoming opportunity. I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but uh, when it happens, I don't want to be, I want to be first in line. Both of you, thanks for joining. Just really good stuff. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope others did too. Uh, I hope everyone stays safe. Definitely send us uh, feedback. I uh, want to get better as a Zoom host. This was version one. Uh, we have a long way to go. Uh, thanks for the, the thoughtful comments in the thread. Austria, thanks for hanging with us. Oregon, uh, kind of all over the, the world. That was great. And uh, we'll try to do this again shortly. So yeah, thanks a lot for joining and we'll talk to you guys all soon. Thanks for joining us today. I have one more request. If you like this show, could you just please give us a review on Apple Podcasts? I'd really, really appreciate it so more investors can hear about us. Follow us at Real Estate Hackers on Instagram if you're cool like my wife. And if you have a great real estate hack, hit me up. Maybe we'll get you on this show. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Eric and team are unbelievable. Thanks for all you do for the show. See you soon.